I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Bought our first unit in Sydney. Um, that was uh, in Lakemba in Sydney. Um, yeah, we picked that one up for a couple hundred thousand back then. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyron Shum and in this episode, we talk to four-time developer Alan Castorina. We hear about his adventures as a pilot and how he saved up to buy his first property for just a couple hundred thousand dollars. Once he started acquiring properties, he couldn't stop. And we also hear about his worst investment that took 18 weeks to settle. Alan Castorina comes from a small town in northern Queensland. He ventured into a few different industries like machinery and aviation before building a successful property development business with his wife. I'm a property developer full-time. Um, we do renovations and land subdivisions here in Brisbane. Um, we've been doing full-time this full-time for four years now um, and, and uh, we're getting um, we're building our business up. We've, we've built a business up to the point now we've got uh, about four or five staff and um, yeah, we're enjoying it. My wife, uh, Michelle, she's part of the team and she loves looking after the renovations, um, you know, the, the, the project management part of it. And, and I do the acquisitions, financing and, and the sales. Let's talk a little bit about maybe your day-to-day. You know, what are you currently doing at the moment every day? What's your you know, typical day look like in the life of Alan's development journey? I get up about up past five, six and um, majority of my day is... Probably you could probably it probably look like uh, staff uh, looking after my staff, some staff training, um, and it's eighty percent of its acquisitions. So I look after I'm looking for new pipeline stock to bring in because that's probably the hardest part of the, the whole um, the model. Um, and then I would you know project management. So if there's some subdivisions going, which I've got one at the moment, so it's a matter of just looking after that, making sure the team, all the consultants are doing their thing. Paying the bills because as soon as you stop paying a bill, then <laughs> everything stops. Um, and then it's networking, networking with agents, ringing people up, um, going to see sites. Um, yeah, so that's my day. And then um, yeah, and I'll, I'll try and finish up about five, which doesn't always happen. And I'll go to the gym four or five times a week, get a bit of um, the other parts of my body working. So. Um, yeah, yeah, and then I'll, I'll I'll usually work six days a week, have one day off, but it's I don't call it work. It's uh, to me, it's fun. You know, it's I'm passionate about it. Yeah, so I like doing it. Mm. Castorina always had a go-getter attitude. He had big dreams and the motivation to make them happen at such a young age. I grew up in a little town called Ingham, in North Queensland, just north of Townsville. It's a 
basically a, a cane farm industry orientated uh, town, uh, mostly Italian community. So I grew up with all the good foods and wines, etc. And um, yeah, so my my childhood dream. I remember I was in grade seven at the time. I wanted to be a pilot, an airline pilot, and um, that's what I did. I ended up leaving school, learning how to fly planes, and I became a flying instructor. Uh, did all that, uh, you know, flew most of southeast Queensland and New South Wales, um, and then. I basically did that for 10 years and um, quit. I landed a job with an airline and I had enough of flying out of living in suitcases and motels and I, I quit. And then I was always interest, interested in, in, in machinery. And, um, uh, I liked operating things, so I went and worked in the industry after that. Um, but always had a, had a passion for wealth because my father – was always into shares. He'd be studying. He'd open his notebook out and study the share market. And I'd always had that 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 passion for wealth. So I'd always interested in reading books and um, yeah, you know, things like that. And I, I landed um, some books on my desk once. It was a Think and Grow Rich. Funny enough, everyone says Think and Grow Rich. Um, and that sort of led into the led into the mindset thing. Um, so I ended up getting a job in my wife and I basically left Ingham basically when my, my, my little fellow was born back in uh, 2000, just after 2002 for a new job in central Queensland. And um, this job gave me the opportunity to, because it was shift work, I had a lot of time on my hands. So I started reading a lot of books and getting into property. Property became a really uh, interesting subject for me. So that's where I sort of got into it, yeah. His childhood sounds almost too good to be true. Filled with picturesque scenery, adrenaline pumping activities and winding local rivers, he never had the chance to be bored. Pretty laid back town. Um, we've, we used to have fun doing just about anything. There was any no computers back then in the 70s. Um, you know, we would you know, have fun just going down the creek, like fishing, jumping into the into the you know the, the local river where all the crocs were we found out now there's heaps of crocs in the rivers we used to jump in <laughs> and um but yeah that we, we'd never seen them so we were none the wiser but i'm sure they were there um i used to like fishing and you know because that was uh, uh, right next to the, the the ocean really good fishing there um yeah and so cane farm so a lot of motorbike riding you know driving and you know, we, we drove well, well uh, before we were allowed to get licenses so in the cane paddocks and it got up to a lot of mischief, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was a good little laid-back town and we um, – and, and funny enough, um, it's rare to say this, but my friends that I went to school with, I'm still good friends with them now and the whole class is the same class that we had way back when we were children. So it was really close, close-knit community. And, um, yeah, we still meet up to this day. Although he was surrounded by farms, his parents worked in different industries. Well, my parents were in retail, so they, my father and mother used to run, um, uh, it's like a, a, an alcohol distribution, like a uh, Forex and 
and Carlton used to have all the alcohol there and they used to distribute all the alcohol to the pubs and then they had a delicatessen. Um, but all my mates had farms. So that's where I got to go and shoot rifles and drive tractors and all that sort of stuff, yeah. Wow, that's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I have to admit, I've never shot a rifle before. I've held one in my hand. It's heavy, that thing. So I don't know what age you were able to lift one of those things up. <laughs> no, they were good fun. Yeah, we used to have a lot of target practice with the local um, you know, animals around there, kangaroos and whatever. So yeah. Growing up in a small town means everything was within either walking or riding distance. Castorina would ride his bike to school every day. My school was um, probably about a 20-minute bike ride. Um, yeah, so it was across town. town was only like 3,000 people, so it's a very small town. And we lived on the other side of town. We used to drive, I used to drive a bike with my mate and go to school like that. Rain, hail or shine, there was no buses or anything. Mum and Dad worked, so they'd, they'd get up at five and go to work. They'd be at work before, long before I'd go to school. So we had to find our way there. Mm. And um, it was a local, yeah, there was two schools in town. If Castorina grew up in a small town surrounded by cane fields and isolated from the rest of the world, how did he become so passionate about aviation? My grandmother and I used to go down to Sydney and in Bellevue Hill my uncle that I was talking to you about earlier and we used to go visit him and as a like a I was probably only eight or nine at the time um when we used to fly down every Christmas and I just got I found this this incredible machine I wanted I wanted to drive and you know, I'd, in those days you were allowed at the front you'd ask the flight attendant can I go up the front for the landing and they'd let you so I'd sit in the jump seat Back then they had 727s and um, 737s and I'd, I'd go up the front nearly every every week, every year that would go up to, uh, down to Sydney and um, I said, this is what I want to do. And, um, yeah, so I, I just put my head down and said, well, I need to pass my exams, get some good marks to do this. And I started that dream back in, you know, probably grade seven when I was at school, so. With his pilot's license in one hand and the yoke in the other, Castorina was at the beginning of all his dreams coming true. I started out in Sydney. I moved to Sydney straight after school, moved into a, a, a little old apartment on my own. So that was quite daunting at the time, um, you know, straight into flight school. Um, I, I actually learned to fly before I left school, actually, because I, I got to know a lot of people in the, in the town that had aircraft. And I used to just hang around the airport on the weekends, or just go there and watch them strip planes and in the in the in the hangar. And then they could see that I had passion, so they took me up. And then eventually, um, I got to know a few people. I got my solo before I left school, and um, so I, I knew well before I left school that that's what I wanted to do. And uh, so then Mum and Dad supported me, and they said, "All right, sounds like this is it." let's go and find a flying school for you and that was down in sydney at the time um yeah but in answering your question what it was like um as a pilot it, it's it's you got to have a passion for it. it's really stressful at times because of, um, i mean the weather the weather uh, when you're a commercial pilot you have to go whether you like it or not you know um you don't go when the airport's shut down of course with thunderstorms but 
you know, a really crappy day, you still've got to take off, take your passengers, um, and it's 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 a lot of workload um, at times, and then and then also to um, keep up your your currency and keep up all your your um, endorsements and license, you have to do regular checks. Um, yeah, so then, um, yeah, the, the actual, you know, the, the, the actual week may look like uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday you're on and then you have Thursday off and you might have to fly Friday, Saturday, then you're off Sunday. So you, you're, your week may be changing all the time. So you, it's not a routine and you might be flying from Sydney to Canberra one day and then Sydney to Melbourne the next and then stop in Brisbane the night after. So it's occasionally it's, uh, you know, you're not home a lot. And, and the what job that I was doing, it was I wasn't home a lot. I was, I was sort of staying in Darwin for a week, coming back for a day, staying in Mount Isa for another couple of days. And then, yeah, so I was all over the place. So I wasn't enjoying it after a while. So. <laughs> Could understand why. Yes, that that's fair enough. And and it sounds like you're doing mostly domestic flights. Did you do any international flights? No, no, just domestic. Yeah. It's it's amazing how many domestic flights we have. I mean, until Jetstar and all those cheaper airlines came in, obviously it was all going back to you know Qantas and and Ansett, wasn't it back then? Ansett, yeah, and Australian, Australian TAA back when I started, TAA and Ansett was yeah. Yeah, I haven't heard of TAO actually recently too. And then there was another one, I think Rex. Rex as well was more sort of the regional type of airlines. Seems like a lot of them have sort of closed a lot of their routes off because of... Yeah, actually the regional airlines are the ones that first to fire up in the small aircraft. There's some mates of mine to, to this day that still have their jobs uh, with the smaller aircraft because uh, they're the ones that they could fill the planes up a lot quicker and the regional routes started up, yeah. Unfortunately, sometimes childhood dreams turn out to be adult nightmares. I like the flying aspect of it, but that was only a very small part of it. The, the whole job entailed a lot of other things, you know, like not being from away from, uh, not being home. Um, and there's, it's a stressful job too, but um, it mainly was here. Yeah, I, I just wasn't home at all. Castorina's talent doesn't stop at knowing how to fly a plane. He also knows how to operate high-level machinery and has always been interested in it. So, he took the next step in his life and pursued a new dream. Well, uh, from there I went um, in where I was living was a, is a sugar industry like I said before. So, I, I went and worked at a sugar mill. They had, um, I got interested in, in operating machinery. So, I landed a job there. Um, and it was only sort of a fill-in job at the time. I, I said, well, I'll just try it just to make ends meet. And um, because I still haven't worked my direction, I'll just I'll just quit my lifetime dream. And now I was sort of in limbo, and I thought, well, I'll just do something to get the money. And and then I discovered that I didn't mind this job; it was quite good. It was interesting, you know. There was some big boilers, big steam uh, boilers there at the time, and I thought, well, this could be a a career. Um, um, whether it was long term or temporary at that stage, it didn't it didn't matter. Um, I was just feeling my ground, and then I ended up staying at the sugar mill there for a few years, and I got a quite a f- I got up the ladder, um, became a you know a senior operator, and uh, I ended up becoming um, a trainer and assessor 
for pressure equipment. So I was teaching guys how to um, operate steam equipment and I used to go and teach at TAFE and do that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, and then that led me to um, move on to chasing a, a bigger, uh, a better job because the, where I was living in that sugar mill was, was sort of limited what I could do. So I said to my wife, Michelle, I said, let's go discovering uh, the rest of the Queensland, see if I can go and find a, a better job in the same field. And I had a few mates that have already left at the time and they they went down to central Queensland, a little place called Biloela. And there was another, uh, few, there was a few industries there. There was uh, some um, all centred around mining. And so I went there for a drive with Michelle one Easter and uh, a friend of mine said, um, come and have a look at where I'm working here. And I went and had a look. It was an ammonium nitrate plant. So they make the explosives for the coal mines. And um, I had all the qualifications at the time and I'd, I had an interview with the boss because he said, come and have an interview with the boss. Uh, I wasn't ready for it. I was just going there for a holiday for a look. And um, and uh, nothing was said at the time and I left, went back and, and they rang me up and said, you got a job if you want to start. And I had, I had a couple of TAFE courses lined up with with the guys at work at back at the sugar mill, and I said, "Look, I can't. I'm committed. I want to. I want to. You know, I promised that I'd, I'd have these guys. I'd do these guys' courses, and um, I, if I can finish that to the end of the year, and then I'll I'll come out to do that job at Christmas time. So that's what we did. The that um, the guys uh, said, "Yeah, for sure, we'll, we'll let you stay there, that current work place, and come and join us." Um, so. It was December the 22nd. We shut the whole factory down at the sugar mill and then Shell and I packed our bags on the 23rd and landed in a new job on the Christmas Eve. On the- <laughs> so I started that new job and, yeah, it was um whirlwind uh, that, that year, that for sure. <laughs> yeah, that, that's great to hear another company being so understanding because it was quite a long wait, you know, many, many months before they could and, Anything can happen. You could have changed jobs and decided I'll go somewhere else and that, but that's great that they waited for your commitment to come through. The fact that I said that I was committed to my previous job and I didn't want to let them down, they could see the benefit there. Um, yeah. yeah. So I opened the next chapter. So. His new job opened up more than one door. He began reading and that's when his property journey began. Yeah, well, it was with that following job. Um, I started reading, like I said before, I started reading a lot of books, property books. Um, I was a, I was actually, um, I'd done a lot of, which I didn't mention before, but I, I, I'd done an extensive amount of um, work study on trading. I, I've been a trader for 15 years, trading futures and stock markets as well. Um, and I was doing that, and, and in those groups, in those um, trading groups, those futures stock market trading groups, um, the guys were mentioning about property. You know, putting your money that you're making, that you, your income, and putting it into assets and parking into there because uh, the trading was a good good method to bringing income in. Um, it could be um, a good wealth generator, but 
it's good to have some money and assets, right? And at, at that time, I said, yeah, well, that's a good idea. So I started reading property books and and I read um, a heap of books, you know, uh, then and then the mind game, mindset books, you know, Think and Grow Rich. And I started getting really passionate because, I, you know, I was – even from day one, I still had, like I said, I still had that wealth that I, I just wanted to be wealthy, you know. One day I – I knew that I wasn't going to work forever and all these things I was interested in, I was interested in being a pilot, I was interested in you know, driving steam equipment and, and all that other stuff but I, I knew that one day I'd be retired early because of my wealth and so I'd always put some effort on the sidelines to read books to, you know, and we did courses. Shell and I um, did some courses, um, you know, some small things there. And then we decided to buy some rentals and that's what kicked it all off so we bought some rentals um bought, bought our first rental back in just right after the gfc end of 08 start of 09 bought our first unit in sydney um that was uh in lakemba in sydney um yeah we picked that one up for a couple hundred thousand back then we said well this is our plan well, we're going to buy property and and then just buy another one and buy, build up a portfolio because that's all I knew at the time. I, everything I read was saying this is how you do it and um, and all our spare money, the money that I'd save because we were really good, we were pretty frugal at the time because living in a little town because Biloela was a similar town where we used to, where I grew up, it was very, you know, there wasn't stuff to spend money on. You could you could just have a good time going camping, fishing, and you know, so you have a lot of disposable income. And um, I used to just pour our money into deposits for houses. And um, to speed it up, we thought, well, let's renovate because that's what we were reading, and that's what we, it made sense to us. So let's renovate. So Michelle done a sherry barber course. Um, come down to Sydney again and I uh, did that and a lot of those things resonated with us and I, I did the course on the disc beside her as well as uh, to review it and uh, so we thought well we'd renovate lift the equity up in the property speed speed it up drag the money and back then straight even straight after GFC banks were quite liberal with them with lending it wasn't until later and as towards 10 and 11 when they started tightening and tightening so we could still get money out um so we yeah we've got a few properties and what, what we'd do is we'd mum and dad would come down because i was still in ingham at the time i'd say i'd ring up mum and say we're buying a property um next month settling we want to go down and renovate it so see if they could come down and look after the kids for us because they're only you know, five and three. And uh, so, they, yeah, right, they come down. So Shell and I drive down or fly down, wherever the properties were, and we'd renovate them. And we'd live in the house, live in the house that we are doing up. And that wasn't pretty because there's dust everywhere and blow up, a blow-up mattress and whatever. And we'd do the place up in three, four weeks. We had a few tradesmen to look after us, uh, you know, do the, you know, the electrical and the plumbing work and, Shell and I do the rest. Um, and that's where we cut our teeth in the renovating world. Once they started acquiring properties, they couldn't stop until suddenly they had to. The maximum was about 13. We got up to 13. I picked, doing that buy, 
buy, renovate and hold strategy, um, we picked up about 10 in six years, six, seven years. Yeah, it was quite quick, Tom. But then it come to a sudden halt <laughs> because well, the banks just shut shop. We just, uh, you know, had too much debt at the point. Although he's experienced the stress of having too much debt, his worst investment experience was actually due to a matter of circumstance. A house that we'd done up, a beautiful renovated house um, and it, the contract crashed four times. Um, and and it's, it's, looking back, it probably wasn't a big deal but at the time it was because uh, every time we a person would buy it, it crashed because of uh, something minor in the building and pest um, or the finance, they couldn't get finance and, and it dragged out. So something that should have sold in a couple of weeks took like um, took about 18 weeks to sell in this current market, which is the market's quite hot. And and um, it's quite easy to, to start worrying about things that aren't there, you know, um, creating things because we, I had a good team. I had a great agent on board. He was doing the best he could and it's just circumstances. Um, uh, yeah, so that and, – and, but in the end it sold. You know, so the, the fourth buyer come in, absolutely loved the place, said, yep, this is for me. And, and so um, the, the key point there was that we just didn't find the right buyer. All these, all these building and pests and finances were just excuses for the buyer to pull out, I think, you know, and they weren't really keen on the house to, to start with. But when you buy a house and you lock it up for 14 days or 21 days for you to do your due diligence, um, you know, you lock the, lock the seller in as well and, you know, you can't put it back on the market. Well, no one's interested in it, so to speak, until that's over, you know. So, um yeah, so anything bigger than that, I've had a few others, but nothing major that I can think of, um, all things like that. Basically, once a buyer has committed to purchasing, you know, both have agreed to exchange a contract to go in, or not exchange, but in the cooling off period, it's basically those two weeks that is locked in and until they've made that final decision, there's not much you can do. So, that's why I could potentially keep dragging on if they keep crashing the contract. Yeah, and I mean, you can have a backup contract, but buyers are reluctant to do that because uh, you know it's it's you know it's not there for them it's not in the taking uh, if they're really keen yeah but I found that a lot of boys rather move on and look for other houses than than deal with that one selling the house took longer than usual but the renovation was pretty quick this one took a while because we bought it just before Christmas and we were doing um, we we're doing a boarding house conversion at the time. We had all our tradesmen there, so we didn't have any spare guys. And that, the tradesmen just went really busy leading up to the end of last year because of all the activity. And so, and we said, well, well let's just go on holidays because we had enough for the year. Let's go on holidays. So we put it on hold, and we finished it late February, so uh, mid February. So it took us probably oh, about two months that one there. Um, so I bought it end of end of November, first week in December, and then it took us till mid February. By the time we got back, you know, got all the tradesmen back on board again. Um, yeah, and we had it on the market towards the end of February. 
Mm. And what was done to the property? Everything, the, the whole thing. Uh, it was in a big mess. The, the um, previous owners let it go. So we, we just did two new bathrooms, kitchen, floors, paint throughout, uh, new fencing, landscaping outside the, the back. The back had um, a big pool that was green, turtles and everything swimming in them, swimming in it, and um, piles of rubbish at the back. Um, it, it, I had to bring a, a mini excavator in to, to, to demolish the pool, but because there was so much rubbish there, we decided to get a, um, a big excavator, 20, a 20-ton excavator in there to do the job, which took us – it only took us a day to do. So he demolished the pool and, and cleaned up all the stuff and, and grabbed the rubbish and put it in the truck. That's <laughs> that much of it. There's about four trucks of rubbish got taken out. Um, yeah, that was a big job. And there was this carport, uh, this, carport, this uh, patio at the back, um, home, home makeshift built. It was built by the previous owner and the cement. And because this excavator had to come in, we had to demolish that as well. So that added to the costs of the renovation because of, I had to replace all that. Um, so that was something we didn't see coming because we've already bought this place. So, um, yeah, so that added probably about $15,000 to the renovation. Um, but fortunately, the because the market is good, um, we picked it up on the other side, you know. He found the house through an agent and took it off the hands of a struggling couple. Through an agent. And, um, yeah, so basically the, the owners had to get out. The bank was um, starting to become an issue for them and, and they said, well, we better sell before the bank takes over and sell. And uh, we were there and it, the place was such a mess. is basically inhabitable. Um it was pretty bad, and we went in with a cash offer and said we'll, we'll buy it now because the, the actual the structure of the house was really good. We went up in the ceiling. I did all the inspections, and up in the ceiling was great. Um, there's no termites at all, surprisingly enough, with this one because there's that much rubbish piled up on the outside of the house. They had entry point, yeah, so good. Everything there was good. Um, so, yeah, we could see the potential there. Castorina's plethora of life experience and property experience means he's both seen the good and bad side of the development world. Some experiences were so substantial, they completely changed his mindset. It's all about mindset. I just recently listening to Bob Proctor um, and he said, you know, you, you go in a, in a building and you're from the bottom level and you, how far do you see and then you go up to the next level and you see a little bit further and you keep you keep learning through your life and the more you do the more you can see and and i um with with my um it's it's probably the biggest one was landmark forum back in um three years ago i did with with young joining young and doing his course he he advocates going to landmark and that was a big eye-opener for me um it it's, I actually end up doing the whole course, the whole curriculum, and it's more about you know we we often think the world is we're fixed and the world is malleable. Now we can change the world, but 
that showed me that the world is largely fixed and we're the ones that have to adapt and and every day we have to adapt you know people talk to you and you react um but that landmark forum really showed me who i am and how i am how i present in the world and so it's a really good thing to do um we often uh, become a roadblock in ourselves you know our fears and the way we react to things in, in life um and that's that's what opened me up i mean doing property and shares do all the other stuff is 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 just the doing bit but learning about yourself is was really a big um thing and and it's constant learning it's all the time so i'd say that was probably the one of the biggest turning points there yeah Starting off with Renault's and then moving into subdivisions allowed Castorina's company to grow steadily. Now they blend their workload together for maximum productivity. For the last three years, we've been doing, you know, averaging between six or eight projects a year. Um, and the blend of, we started off doing majority of renovations because that's what we were used to doing. And then I've been throwing in some subdivisions. I've been trying to build that business up. And now, so now it's like 50-50. So currently we um, we've got we're just finishing a Queenslander renovation in Brisbane. We're just about to put that on the market next week. I've got a three lot subdivision in the middle middle ring suburb in Brisbane. Um, that's sort of towards the end of it. I'm, I'm going to plant ceiling now. All the all the blocks are sold. So it's just a matter of just doing the paperwork and getting the council to to stamp it and getting titles. Um, and I've got a, another project under contract that's an eight-lot subdivision that um, we're doing a pre-lodgement meeting next week with council to see if they will allow us to do what we want to do and if not, then how do they want to do it. Um, so hopefully that we can and iron out a lot of engineering issues with that to see if, you know, moving forward it's a it's a viable project. Um, yeah, and we, we just sold a few yeah, you know, like the one I told you about that pool, and that we just that that's settling in a couple of weeks, and um, yeah, so that's the current situation. While he tackles both subdivisions and renos, he enjoys one more than the other. I, I like the subdivisions. My wife she, Michelle, she likes the renos. I like the the renos because of the cash flow, because you know that the one that pool house was too much. Normally we do them in four to six weeks with, with they're finished. And, and so that, that income stream is good. Um, you know, subdivisions take a lot longer. You get, you get profits, uh, you know, 10 to 12 months apart. But I, I like the subdivisions because they're, they're sort of more, um, uh, I like that engineering sort of things. I like that. Um, and I like finding them. I like this, you know, trying to design the, the blocks of land, how we're going to do it, and acquiring them. I like talking to people. I like meeting owners. At the start, I didn't. I was sort of a bit shy, but now I don't mind. I enjoy going to meet somebody and seeing if we can strike a deal together. You know, have a win-win for both of us. So, all that stuff here. Yeah. Castorino needs structure and organisation when working on a project. This justifies his favouritism of subdivisions over Renaults. Renaults are like driving a, a, a speed a race car. Yeah, it's like everyone there. You need you need the guy to change the wheels. You know, everyone's got to be there on time. Otherwise, it doesn't happen. You'll lose. Uh, whereas subdivisions, 
uh, slow, but you know, still like driving a, you know, one of those um, ferries across Manly there, you know, steady, steady. So, um, not not to say that you can make errors, but it's a more slow moving process. Um, however, you can still make mistakes, and 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 usually, it, it, I, I'd say. Um, for me, I've made heaps of them so far. It's it's not not planning ahead, so not looking into the future and saying I'm going to need this guy. So let's let's organise him and so forth. Or it could be just a, a mistake that nobody's seen that it's a um, an engineering issue. The, the sewer line is lower than what it was meant to be, or we've got to do something bigger, like you know, put up a retaining wall or lift the block up to get the sewer down. So those things are none of no one can see potentially early, so they're more costly errors, you know. Whereas a renovation, we can we can stuff up on a reno, and it might only cost us five grand. But uh, a subdivision, you could stuff up, and it could cost you fifty or hundred, you know. So um, that's the difference. But the rewards are much bigger. A recent subdivision he did was an unfinished mansion that he managed to get his hands on. The amount of work it needed was almost unbelievable for the developer, yet he managed to make a huge profit out of someone else's mistakes. So basically, purchased it through a um, directly, bought it through an owner directly. So I sent a letter out. I got a phone call. The, the owner sounded interested in doing a, having a chat further. So I went to his place and we had a chat. And um, found out what they wanted. It's sort of roughly where I wanted to be too. So um, we, we struck a deal. I found out what he wanted. He wanted a quick settlement. He didn't want too much messing around. So I gave him that. And I said, oh, I just needed uh, a week and a half, two weeks to do some DD on the site, due diligence. And I uh, went to the the consultants, the town planner, the engineer, and found out it was all good to go. I did redone my FISO and um, renegotiate a little bit less because I had a few road crossings to send water across the road and it was going to cost another 20 grand. Uh, settled on that property, big house, uh, 1,200 square metre lot, um, big house on it that was basically unlivable. It was built, but they didn't finish it. It was all just, um, and they actually built it over the top of a, a three-bed, one-bath house. So they built this like, I don't know any bedrooms. I, I didn't take notice of the plans, but it looked like a ten-bedroom house. By <laughs> the size of it, it's it massive, like six hundred square meter house, uh, it? half the site. And he built it over the top of another house, and then the the, the owners that I bought it off. Um, Stripped that house inside, took that, demolished that house, and took it out, steady, steady like that, and left left the shell of the new house. And their plan was to do it up, you know, finish it, you know, so sheet the walls and finish the plumbing and whatever, fit it out. But they uh, they they must have run out of money. They couldn't afford to do it anymore because it's massive. It would cost. I did the numbers in it. I brought some carpenters and builders over there, and they said at least four hundred thousand to do this place, get it back to what it should be. So that was off the cards. Uh, so, yeah, so demolished that, 
no, that that was flattened in a matter of hours. How much do you think that house would have been worth in itself? To build that, that was a massive house. Um, to build that, they would have spent at least two, three hundred thousand on it because it's it's all brand new, brand new iron roof. How did you feel when you looked at it and went, "Wow, this is a brand new house"? Obviously, it's going to cost four hundred thousand to continue to work on it, but still, it just feels like a complete waste to demolish something like that. Yeah, it's a shame. Could could you have even lift it up and sold it to someone else? No. No, no, it was just it it, it, the, it wasn't sealed, so all the timbers were still there, so it would have needed reframing, I'd say, and and having all that timber exposed there for all that amount of years uh, wasn't doing it any good, and and the fact that the plumbing there was no there's no paperwork, so you know when you build a house, you've got to go through stages of certification, you know, the, the subfloor, the foundation, the plumbing, make sure that all the all the Protrusion has got uh, white ant um, protection. We, we couldn't find any of that paperwork. So essentially we would have had to jackhammer all the cement, which was just like 600 square metres of it, and uh, redo all the plumbing work because you couldn't prove to the next buyers that it was protected. So, yeah, it was another thing. But all the, all the neighbours said, oh, what a shame, what a shame. But a lot of them said it was just standing there for years and years. No one was doing anything for it, so it's better getting three new houses up there. So, and that's what we did. So we sub- subdivided into three blocks. Um, it, because it was slowed down to the back, about a meter, just under a meter to to the corner, we had to um, raise raise bring in a lot of fill and raise the back up so all the water, the stormwater, would run to the front. Where it's meant to on the on the verge and the gutter, and that re- requires um, retaining walls on either side. So the civil bill was about ninety thousand between connecting the sewers to the three blocks or providing sewers, uh, water, retaining wall and fill, some fencing. Um, yeah, so that's it. And now, so now we're in uh, uh, what do you call it? as as constructed drawings they've, they've just been completed so you 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 basically go and get a da you um get that approved you um get the drawings done by the engineer they they that we then construct according to those drawings and then we've got to prove that we constructed to those drawings so we get some drawings and then those drawings are now going with the engineer they'll they'll sign off on it and then we'll send all that, all those documents, all that evidence to the council to show that we've completed to the according to their conditions. And that's called plan sealing. And and then we'll go for titles, which I expect July. And then the owners will take over. They'll how much did you purchase this block for? All, all those kind of things. So um, purchased for four four thirty, hundred thirty thousand. Um, hang on, give me. Can I? bring this up yeah yeah sure sure this is exciting this is what i like to hear because <laughs> if you said it's ninety thousand to do the civils i'm curious now you know how much each block would have been sold for roughly and then rough estimates you know i've got it here now i've got exact here for you um so 430 to buy um the the construction cost 228 so the 90 was part of that all the rest is consultants and um, and the blocks sold for three fifteen, three twenty, three forty. So a total of nine seventy five, right? And so profit after 
holding costs of about 50k and GST of about 40, um, 170. That's fantastic. Over what period? 10 months. That's great. That's a very good profit. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's a good one, and it was easy too. Like I, I done a similar one like this last year. Same thing, sloping, all the similar same um, engineering things, and uh, so I was used to it, and it was easy to do. Yeah. So the biggest challenge I think a lot of people come and talk about when they're looking for blocks to subdivide as a developer is to actually find these blocks. Because if you understand the concepts of doing it, it's actually a process, and you just follow that step by step. But the challenge is finding it. Is that what you found as well to be? The, the biggest oh that's the biggest yeah defining them the ones that stack up and i mean there's there's so many on the market but none of them stack up none especially on realestate.com none of them stack up and to try and find that needle in the haystack is difficult so it's, it's a lot of work you know a lot of work to do that in some markets finding a property like that could take months he explains how you could feasibly do it depending on your schedule. Well, I, I think it's it dependent on market too, by the way. I mean, it, you know, some markets are quicker than others. I, I think good 12 months at least, at least, and, and, and look at hundreds and hundreds of sites. Um, so, so, and that, so 12 months is someone full-time. So if you're doing it part-time, I mean, if you're going to look at, say, um, 500 sites before you get one and if you can only look at 10 a week yeah you know, it's it's a lot you know so um you know it depends on how much time you have but I, i'd say at least 12 months unless you're really lucky yeah luckily for castorina he's built a team that helps with developments so he doesn't spend months at a time searching for deals yeah i've got a guy working he's, he's really good um so he's looking in he, I do. I talk to agents, and um, I, I do deal directly with agents, and he he sort of goes directly with landowners. So we've got sort of a blend happening, um, and I've got a team of um, um, three girls working for me that do the research. So I look at sites and uh, do the the groundwork. Just, just looking at you know contours and flooding and all that sort of stuff. So I'm, I'm not looking at the wrong sites in the first place, you know, because I send letters out too. I don't want to send letters to a site that's fully flooded. Of course, yeah. So it's very, very targeted. So you've actually already pre-planned where you're going to be even sending out the letters, because otherwise you're just basically blanketing out letters to people who might not be interested, and it just becomes a waste. So you're really, really targeted exactly where you're, you're really wanting these blocks for. Or, or you send letters to a an owner that never gets letters and you'll get the phone call straight away. Yeah, I'm interested in selling, but it's it's like three meters underwater. So and, and it's not a site that you can develop, so you're just wasting everybody's time. You know? It's it's freedom. It's um it's it's a feel it's a feeling of freedom. So I, I can, you know, when you when you're working the the hours of and the holidays are fixed. You know, you can only go away when when the the boss tells you you can go away. Now, basically, we we do what we choose. We, if we want to go away next week, we can. Um, so that's one. I'm home all the time. Um, sometimes Shell says I'm home too much, but <laughs> it could be a good thing, you know, especially COVID. You know, 
you know, it's all the little things, um, you know, that we've got money now because it's, it's, to me, uh, the amount of money I earn it depends on how much work I put in, you know, so if I put more work, and so that money, I can use it. If we want to go on a holiday, we can. And, and if I want to donate it, I can. And so there's freedom of what we do with, with our money. And, and there's things like, and then I'm meeting, I'm, I'm, I'm involved with a lot of wonderful people that I've, uh, you know, getting all these new ideas, you know, with, you know, new charities, different businesses, all that sort of stuff. So it's, yeah, it's great because you're in a great environment. Um, so, yeah, and I'm always evolving. You know, I'm not the same person I was last year. So it's just, uh, yeah, you grow as, as you go. Castorina believes he's constantly growing and changing. So, how did he develop that mindset to begin with? He credits some of his evolution to his favorite books. I like all the Rob Moore books. Um, if I can, I've got one here. I think, no, I don't. No, I don't have it there. But um, any book by Rob Moore is really good. Um, you know, the, the um, Stephen Covey's book, you know, the six, uh, Seven Habits of uh, Highly Successful People. Um, any of uh, Kiyosaki's books are great. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm reading some autobiographies now. I'm reading Branson's stuff at the moment. That, that's pretty good. Uh, yeah, there, there's heaps. Oh, I'm reading all the time. And you have to, and every time I read the book, I read it from a different angle. So, um, yeah, all that stuff. Um, actually, one I just read recently, which is really great. Um, I've only got it on Kindle, but a guy called Naval Ravikant. He's a he's a he's an angel investor over in the states, and he's really good. Um, you read his material, um, really good stuff. Yeah, what what's that book about? The what's it called? It's um, the Almanac of Naval Ravikant. It's it sounds like a very interesting book to read. I have to pick it up. I always love hearing some new titles, especially people's autobiographies. You know, I've been reading a lot, like um, yeah, Phil Phil Knight's one with Nike. You know, um, Richard Branson's ones. I just love all these autobiographies because it really goes to show, I guess, a bit of backstory behind how they achieved their success and built those large companies. Yes, yeah, that's good, and it gives you inspiration. A man as interesting as Castorina must find inspiration from an even more interesting person. Refreshingly, Castorina believes that the best inspiration comes from within oneself. I think, um, and it comes from everybody. Young keeps saying to me or reminding me all the time, but it's it's always looking within. You know, always, if there's a problem, it's always here. I'm creating the problem. So... Um, you know, we, we, we only perceive the world through our own belief system, you know, our own fears and whatever. So, and you might, we might have the same situation and you and I might see it totally different ways. I might react and we feel scared and you might say, this is great. And it's just because we perceive it because of our belief system. So if something's bothering you, it's because of us, you know. Um, um, and it, it, I get told every day, you know, young keeps saying to me, you know, yeah. You're your own worst enemy. So yeah, I think that's that's. I think if you can be self-aware and look at look at yourself from outside, look how you react and look at your thoughts all the time, you'll realise that um, yeah, that off you're often wrong. 
um, you know, it's, it's not this, it's not the other person's fault. It's not the other. It was not what happened. Um, that's the problem. It's interesting just to hear that perspective because if you, I guess. Take a step back and think about it. It's not always uh, right or wrong. It's about perception of whatever it is, and that perception is, you know, it could be different for everyone. And depending on who you are and who you, you know, perceive and so forth, could be thinking it could be right or wrong. You know, it's um, I guess a good another example I'm thinking of is maybe like when you're got something that you don't want it's rubbish and you want to chuck it out but you can put it onto like you know gumtree or ebay and people find it's a treasure it's like that kind of thing because you don't think oh you know i don't need it anymore that person might love, love it <laughs> it's exactly like that in property you know somebody really desperately doesn't want this house anymore because it's a trouble for them but we pick it up because <laughs> it's extremely profitable for us as developers exactly everyone's a different spot if castorina could travel back in time and speak to that little boy who grew up in a small town surrounded by cane fields and daydreaming about planes what would he say to him? Stop worrying about the future. Stop worrying about the future and relax. You know, I was, I was always 100, 100 mile an hour. That's how I was even from school. I was always got to do this, got to do this. Just relax. It's a, it's going to be okay. You know, uh, it's going to be okay because it does. It will always work. It always works out. You keep working at something, it'll work out. So yeah, definitely. Looking forward to the future, what is he most excited about in the next five years? Um, travel, when we can do it, <laughs> when we can do it. Um, I, I like to build a business up a little bit more to a point where I, where I want it to be and have a little bit, a few more staff in it so I'm sort of less required, so to speak, so to run it less with me. Um, yeah, and then, and then travel. So I want to, I want to spend... My my eldest son is sort of starting to leave the nest. He's sort of he's eighteen and he's spending less and less time. So I want to, you know, let's take you to places and let's do as many, you know, give him as much experience as we can, spend as much time together, that sort of stuff. And and yeah, there's heaps of things, but they're the main ones. Yeah. And last question for you, Alan, as well is how much of your success that you've achieved along your journey is due to intelligence, hard work, and skill, and how much of it would you say is luck? I think you create the luck, um, and luck. I think there's the luck is um, uh, in actually in that book he says it, the same thing. It, luck, you know, if 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 you just um, you, if you just turn up one day and that owner wants to sell the house for you cheap. That's luck, but if if I put a thousand offers in and I went and look at a thousand houses, and that on, on the last day of the year I had I got a owner that wants to sell the house to me, and you say, "Well, you're just lucky," but no, I did all that work leading up to it. So it's 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 action, you know. I, I don't think you have to be super intelligent to do this. You you know you have to be uh, have a wits and but have. A, just, just do stuff. Just do stuff all the time. Be nice to people. Be honest. Um, always look for win-win. You know, you'll help the next person out. Let the let the money flow through you to other people. So, um, all that stuff is more important than than I think intelligence. But and just doing stuff, doing stuff all the time. And luck will happen. You know, you do it long enough, and you'll get lucky every now and then. So. 
Yeah, I think it's just all about the preparation is, is what you're saying. You know, once you're prepared, the opportunity arises in front of you and because you're prepared, luck strikes it. And getting the right people around, you know, like young, getting people there and and rub shoulders together, get some information, you know, share um, and you use other people to, to help you and, and then you help other people and, you know, it, that's where it happens. Thank you to Alan Castorina, our guest on this episode of Property Investory. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.